I'm an elder here at Christ Community Church. I'm not the normal guy up here. That's, that's normally Jared, but we let him slip away for a little time for vacation with his family. Um, and so you guys are stuck with me this morning. As you can tell, as we read that passage of Scripture, you can tell that this is a big psalm. There's a lot going on in Psalm 68. Each summer, we kind of step away from our normal teaching routine. We normally teach through a book of a Bible at a time, but in the summers at our 930 hour, we do a summer seminar. So this, this summer, we're looking at parenting. I would encourage you to come be a part of that. We just had our first uh, one this morning. Kent, thankfully, uh, was able to fill in for Ryan, who's not feeling good, but we really appreciate that. But it, it'll be a great time for those of you who are active in parenting. If you're not active in parenting, maybe you're going to be a parent one day. Maybe you've raised your kids, but you can provide a lot of wisdom uh, for those of us who are in the process of it, and you're raising grandkids. And so uh, we would love for everybody to be a part of that. And for those of you um, who, who might not ever have children, you're spiritual parents to all these kids uh, in this room today. And so I, I feel like as believers, we're all parenting. So I would just encourage you to be a part of that. But this morning, we're stepping into this psalm, Psalm 68. It's 35 verses. We could spend hours and hours and hours unpacking each verse, uh, but I would be in really bad trouble because Ava Kate has a dance recital at two, and uh, you guys would be have like pitchforks out uh, ready to chase me off the stage. So we're going to take kind of an overview of this psalm. We're going to look at it, if you will, like at a 30,000 foot view, and what we really want to do is pick up some of the big key themes that the Lord is showing us through this passage. Uh, before, before we do that, I just kind of want to ask us a question. It's a question for all of us, and the question is, do you ever struggle with worshiping God? Do you ever feel like your heart just isn't there? And, and do you ever struggle with like stirring up your heart to worship? And before you answer that question, I just want to define what I mean by worship. Worship, we often think of as Christians and non-Christians, we think of worship as what happens on Sunday morning. When we sing songs of praise, when we pray, when we read scripture, when we hear scripture taught. And that certainly is a very key component to worship. It's vital in the Christian life. But I would say that worship is more than that. I'm a simple guy, I like simple definitions, and so I'll simply say that worship is putting God in his rightful place in our lives. It's honoring him as king. At Christ Community Church, we like to say that worship is a continuous and conscious action of honoring and revering God in all aspects of our lives. You know, we just finished studying the book of Colossians, and Colossians has a lot to say about this. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Romans 12.1 calls on us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so we just spent the last three weeks talking about how that applies to parenting, how that applies to marriage, how that applies to the workplace. And so we would say that as mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, employees and employers, we are called to worship God in whatever we do as we 
eat, drink, work, and play, we're called to honor God. And, and when we do that uh, by worshiping him through our activities. So kind of with that definition in mind, we kind of ask ourselves again, do you ever struggle with worshiping God? And if I'm being honest, if you're being honest this morning, you would say yes. There are times in your life, probably on a daily basis, where you struggle with putting God in his rightful place. Now, there's many of you in here this morning that have been walking with the Lord for many years, and your life is characterized by worship. And I see that in, like, relationships, the way you love God's Word, the way you love people. But there are people who are struggling more than others in here this morning. Some of you may have woken up one day and found yourself just in a dead place, like a desert. You, you remember a time in your life where you woke up each morning ready to glorify God, you were on fire for the Lord, if you will, but that's not there anymore. And it may be that like the circumstances in your life, the difficulties of this world have gotten you down. Maybe you're even questioning God's goodness. And if you're really honest, you might be bitter and angry with God because things haven't turned out the way you thought they should in your life. Some of you are experiencing these seasons of dryness and you're not even really sure where they come from. You can't, you can't pinpoint it, you just know it's there. You know it's a struggle. Some in here this morning might not have ever understood what it means to worship God at all. You know, we are made to worship. God created us to worship, and so we're going to worship something. But you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping another person. You're worshiping your job, a bank account. You're worshiping your image. But you're not worshiping God, and you're not even sure if he's deserving of your worship. So with all of that in mind, if you find yourself this morning struggling, if you find yourself in an indifferent place, or if you find yourself doing really well and you're in a good place spiritually and you just want to stay there, what's the solution for us? How can we stir our hearts to worship the Lord with our lives? This psalm that we just read, Psalm 68, we see a people being called into worship a people's hearts being prepared for worship. Most commentators would attribute this psalm to King David. It's a song that was wrote to commemorate the Ark of the Covenant being moved into the tabernacle. And so it's a hymn of both remembrance and anticipation. It's remembrance. It's looking back on God's continued protection and provision for the, for the Israelites and how they had gotten to this place and so they're looking back and seeing all that God had done, all the enemies that God had defeated, all that God had done to, to keep them together as a people and bring them to this place. There's also a looking forward. There's an anticipation to God's ultimate victory. And the psalm ends with the only proper response, which is a call to praise, a call to worship this awesome God. And so there's three really big key themes I want us to look at this morning as we look at this passage. The first theme is this, it's that God is big. He's a big God. He's powerful. The second thing I want us to see is that God is good. 
He's a big God, he's powerful, but he's also good. And the third thing I want us to see is that God is relentless. He's a relentless God. So let's jump in. So God is big. Right off the bat here in Psalm 68, in the first two verses, we see that God is big. We see that he is powerful. It says this, it says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. So right off the bat, we see that this is a God who really has no difficulties with his enemies. He's not even really breaking a sweat, if you will. He, he's vanquishing them like wax before a fire. In verse 12, we see that the kings and armies of the world flee at the word of God. In verse 17, we see God's power contrasted with worldly power. It says the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. This would have been kind of like comparing God's power to the power of the Egyptians, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh chased the Israelites out of Egypt with 600 chariots, and they were the super world power at the time. Verse 7 through 9 recount God's miraculous care for the Israelites after they were chased out of Egypt and entered into the wilderness. It says this, O God, you went out before your people when you marched through the wilderness. The earthquake, the heavens poured down rain. Before God, the one of Sinai. Before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. So this is not only a God who can vanquish his enemies by simply arising from his throne. This is a God who controls nature. He controls it because he authored it. He's the king. He owns it. You know, if you've ever had the opportunity, I'm sure everybody has, to go look up at a dark night sky. Maybe you've even been able to be on a mountaintop where there's no light around and the stars are really popping out. You're, you can't help but be amazed. You know, you, if you have a pulse, you're going to be amazed by that if you really take it all in. And then we have these pictures like from the Hubble telescope that let us see even further out and we see the intricacy of creation and the vastness of it. The fact is we can only see a, a very, very small portion of what's out there, even with our telescopes. But Genesis 1 tells us that simply by his word, it was all created and ordered. He sends rain when needed and provides food and provision miraculously for his people so that they can be sustained in the wilderness. We don't have a picture here of a weak and indifferent God. He's not kind of like floating on the clouds in heaven, really kind of hoping that we all get it right one day, that everything's going to be okay, that he, he's not really sure how it's going to turn out. This is a God who's in control. He's powerful. The power is incomprehensible to us. We can think about it, we can ascribe it to him, but we really can't fathom it. So we're going to see from this psalm, we see that he's, he's big, he's powerful, and the second theme that's important for us to see is that God is good. You know, there's a lot of people in our 
culture today and throughout the ages that would say, yes, I believe there's a God, there's a creator, there's something out there, but I don't believe he's good. I look at all the difficulties in this world, all the suffering, all the tragedy, and I just can't believe that he's a good God. And if we're being honest with ourselves here this morning, we've all probably struggled with that in our lives. We've questioned God's goodness. And I know that we've questioned it because we're sinners. When we sin, when we rebel against God's command, that's what we're saying. We're questioning the goodness of God. We're questioning if he really does have our best interest at heart, if he really does love us, if he really does want good for us. We're choosing to worship something else when we sin. We're saying that thing is better than what God has. So when we think about this powerful God, this creator, this God who scatters the armies, who judges and destroys his enemies, when we think about God's power, it should be a little scary to us. It should be a little scary. He's not a jolly old Santa Claus getting ready to grant all our wishes. He's a roaring lion. You know, for all of you C.S. Lewis fans, I know there's quite a few in here, you, you know this quote in the Chronicles of Narnia when, when Lucy is, is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they're talking about Aslan, the king who's going to come back and make all things right, the mighty lion. They're, they're talking about all his attributes and talking about how powerful and great he is. And Lucy starts to get a little scared, and she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Is Aslan safe? Mr. Beaver's response is, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Verse 4 through 6 tell us this. It says, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. We've seen that God's provided for his people but the psalmist here in these verses is pointing out that he's also a compassionate God. He's kind. He's the father to the fatherless, the protector of widows. He serves the homeless and the sojourner. He brings prisoners not just to freedom, but to prosperity. He not only breaks chains, he wants us to thrive. Our God is a God who cares very much for the least of these. We see this throughout Scripture. We see this in this psalm. We see that God chooses to draw close to the outcast, to the downtrodden, to those who are lower in society. He chooses to use them for great roles in his kingdom. All of us who claim Christ, all of us who are believers, are a part of that kingdom. And he's the king, and we are called to emulate the king. James tells us in the New Testament that true and undefiled religion before God is to 
care for orphans and widows. So we see that God is a God of compassion. He's a good God. He's a loving God. And we should be a people of compassion too. We follow the king. We follow the king. The third point I want us to see, we've seen that he's good. We've seen that he's powerful. We've seen that he's compassionate. I want us to see that also God is relentless. And what I mean by that is he is relentless in the pursuit and preservation of his people. He's relentless in the pursuit and preservation of his people. We see this throughout all of Scripture. We definitely see this in Psalm 68 this morning. We've seen the psalmist recount these military victories. We've seen that he's provided for Israel. He's provided food, water, substance. He's even provided them their own land. Verse 19 through 22, let's look at that. It says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. In this passage here, we see that he not only saves, but he sustains daily. He bears them up. We get this picture of preservation, and it's relentless. At first glance, we could kind of falsely believe that, you know, this good, powerful God is serving a good and obedient people, and they kind of deserve this from God. But if we've read any of our Old Testament we see that these were rebellious people. They were stiff-necked people. They did not want to worship. Time and time again, they rebelled against God's rule in their lives. But God, in his mercy, would save them. He would bring them back. He would discipline them and bring them back into the fold, and then they would rebel again, and it would start all over again. David most, off, most likely wrote this psalm, and we see that in David's life, right? Chosen from a boy to be king, led into great victories, made into a great kingdom. And what does he do? He rebels. He falls out. But the Lord brings him back. And ultimately, if you're a believer here this morning, you'll see this in your own story right? You see this in your own life. God is not deserving of worship just because he's powerful. That's certainly a part of it, but he's worthy because he's a God of grace and mercy. He's a good God. He's a compassionate God. He's a loving God. In verse 21, we see that God strikes the heads of his enemies. And this may make us think back to the beginning. In the garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were banished from the garden, and their relationship with the Lord was changed forever. In Genesis 3.15, we see that God already had a plan in place for the world. He had a plan of redemption in place. We read about the promise of the one, the offspring of Eve, who was to come 
who would crush the head of our ultimate enemy, the serpent. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of God's goodness to us. He's the serpent crusher who came to live the perfect life so that he could be the only acceptable sacrifice for us so that we could have ultimate victory from our enemy, from sin, so that we could be made right, so that we could be saved from the wrath of a just and holy God. Not because we are good and powerful, but because God is. So I would say that as we look at this psalm, we would see that through God's pursuit of the Israelites, and as we look forward in Scripture, through Christ and his pursuit of his people throughout history until today, we see that God is a God of relentless pursuit and preservation. That promise is for you. So earlier I asked the question, how do we stir our hearts up for worship? So whether you're in a good place this morning with the Lord, spiritually you're doing well, or whether you're struggling. I say what the psalmist says in this psalm, it's to remember and anticipate. Remember what God has done for you. Think about how this all-powerful God who created the heavens and earth, who scatters rulers, who melts his enemies into wax, how this God knows you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows you and he wants good for you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, that despite your sin, he has relentlessly pursued you and promises to uphold you. As you remember that, I also want you to anticipate. I want you to anticipate the future he has for you. The work that he has for you that will bring so much joy in your life here on earth. And ultimately that you will be delivered from all of your sufferings in this life. You'll be delivered from your sin and all the difficulties that we face for eternity. When we think on these things, when we remember and we anticipate, the only proper response for us is worship. Psalm 68 ends with these words. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So I'd say just the key to stirring our hearts this morning, stirring our hearts to worship, it's to take our eyes off of ourselves. It's to take our eyes off of our circumstances and look on this awesome God who is able to give us power and strength, who's able to keep us, who's able to cause us to endure. So when Christ becomes our treasure, worship will come naturally. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a powerful God. You are a God who's in control. You are a God who loves us and who's merciful and who's good, who's holy and pure. Father, we just acknowledge that we are not that, that we are sinful and broken and we can only be made right through Christ. Father, just help us to see that 
day by day. Help us to worship you as we think on your goodness. Help us to remember what you've done for us. If there are those in here who have never known you, Lord, I just pray that they would, they would know you. They would see their great need for that. That you would save them. Forgive us of our sins and just help us to worship you as we go forward in this life. 